Welcome to the Parent Toolbox Podcast. I am Dr. Joel Franks from the Inventive Minds Child, Youth, and Family Center. We are a not-for-profit organization helping families with day-to-day parenting ups and downs from expectancy to teen. Today, we are thrilled to have Dr. Natasha Sharma, a wellness entrepreneur, creator of the Kindness Journal, and the 8-Hour Therapist, and one of Canada's top media experts on the psychology of relationships, parenting, and emotions. So Dr. Sharma will be discussing how to manage relationships and parenting after having children. So welcome, Dr. Sharma. Can you please start by telling us a little bit more about yourself? As Jill said, I am an expert in the field of wellness. I've been in mental health and wellness for the past decade, initially focusing more as directly working as a psychotherapist with individual clients and couples, and then moving on towards more uh, other things like uh, bringing that information and tools and knowledge out to a much broader audience. I also have two children as well. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old. That's been an interesting and enjoyable experience. So I sort of bring that element into also understanding how to try and combine and balance everything that changes on multiple levels after we have kids. Great. Now, our first question for you is how do we manage when two parents have different parenting styles? Before I even jump in the answer to that, I think let's all acknowledge what we all know, which is that there are few things that will shift the earth beneath your feet in life other than something like parenting, like having a child. Getting married is actually not a huge change provided you've been with that person for some time before the marriage, obviously. Even moving in together is a relatively benign change. But having children is quite life-shifting. Going through a pandemic is quite life-shifting, just to give an analogy. It's a monumental thing that we invite into our lives. Just being kind of conscious and aware of that helps to understand and contextualize what we all go through after we become parents and the discombobulation that sometimes happens. Not everyone has a two-parent household, but where there are more than one parents in the home, which is quite a number of homes, if not the majority, you're two different people number one. Okay, so you don't stop being two different people when you get into a relationship. You don't stop being two different people when you get married. And you certainly don't stop being two different people when you become parents. It's only natural that there should be some expectation of differences. You will come up against one another in different approaches. I think one thing to be very mindful of is how big the gap is. In an ideal way, We would have tried to gauge that in advance before trying to have children with a partner. Are we more or less on the same page with our values, the way in which we live our lives, our moral compass, our views on education, on discipline, on the world, really? These are the big, big, big things that you want to be on the same page about in a relationship in order for that to really work. Assuming that those are in place, you have minor differences. And if you have examples, please put them in the chat box if you have specific examples on this question. For example, I can use an example in my family. I'm not a huge meat eater and I don't really like eating it. My husband grew up eating meat. It's very much a part of his diet. We're on different pages. And the way we negotiate around this is our kids need to be able to experience something from both of us in this very small difference. We sort of strike a balance. We meet somewhere in the middle. At some point, we have to let them choose what makes sense, trying to educate them as best as we can. But there are other differences that people have in parenting that can be very significant. Well, discipline styles, for example, freedom. Should they be allowed to do this or go there or play that or hang out with these friends or play hockey or football? So there's a lot of different things you can be differing on. I've seen couples 
who get caught off guard, unfortunately, when they have kids with really big things such as how do I want to raise my child religiously or what I want them to learn in school or not learn in school based on what things are going on in the curriculum. These can become real challenges and it kind of speaks back to you'd want to have that sorted out before you have a child. But if you find yourself in a position like that, it's best to sit down together where you have a really big difference. Like one person wants to raise their children with religion, the other one doesn't. You need to sit down together as parents and really understand the why behind each person. Don't just staunchly dig down and say, it's got to be my way, I'm right. Because that's our typical first response, especially as parents. We feel that we're doing the best. We want to do the best for our kids. And then we assume that our way is the best. Listen to your partner. Listen to their why behind what it is that they want. And see if there's really any harm that's being done in how they want to do something. Sometimes we just stop, dig down because we're used to it and because we just want to have our way. Other times there might be real reasons that we disagree with the way our partner is doing something. Discipline is a common area there where people really differ on discipline. Someone is far too difficult or far too soft. And that's probably the most common thing that I see parents who differ on that. So again, sitting down, speaking up about what you feel, what the issues are for you, and trying to have a calm discussion about it and keeping your children central and focused trying to present the best information that you can that will help you make a good decision about what research and society knows is good for them, but also what the two of you can manage. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. I don't have this uh, situation, but as you were talking, I started to think about what about the families who they may have this, this plan and, you know, their parenting plan before having children, but then they have a child with autism or they have a child with ADHD. What then? Because then, you know, things will shift as I would imagine that would really throw a huge wrench in how each parent may deal with their child differently. Yes, I think parenting plan, you have, we have to be really careful with those words because it's, it's good to have, it's good to know who you are as a parent and what your approach is. Conscious parenting, being very intentional about your parenting is always an extremely good thing. But we also have to be very agile and adapt to the, our children. That is what it means to be a parent, is to release ourselves to the all of a sudden high degree of unpredictability. There are things we cannot control. There are things we will not be able to control. And so we have to be able to negotiate that along with our parenting preferences and our approach. So everyone has a vision of how it's going to look. And whether your child has difficulties or not, that the vision is never what you think it is in your head before you have kids. But if you do have have children who have specific challenges, like additional kinds of challenges. Yeah, we have to be agile. We have to be flexible and adaptive and know that that is actually what the best thing that we can do for them is to revisit and not overly plan, not be overly rigid with any kind of approach. Um, all children, no matter what age they are, no matter what uh, struggle or where they are or where they live in the world, they really require the same basic things at the end of the day. Of course, they need unconditional love and support. As adults, we can't really give unconditional love to one another. We can give it to ourselves, but we can't give it to one another. But we can give pretty darn close to unconditional love to our children, so they need that. And they need praise and approval and support and security and safety and structure and guidance and teaching. Those are really the core things, no matter where your child falls on the spectrum. As parents, you really want to be both people enforcing all of those things that I just said, like really making that a part of your household.
So the next question, I'll try to phrase this as diplomatically as I can and not uh, sound like it's husband bashing, but I know as a mom, I feel like I'm always go, 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 wake up. I'm the one getting the kids breakfast, getting them off to school, then work. Then when they come home, it's really hard to find that free time for that self-care as a mom, but oftentimes the husbands come up from work, they can, you know, have time to relax a little bit, sure, play with the kids some, but it, it seems like their free time is a lot greater. How do women keep from building any resentment around that towards their husband? That's an excellent, excellent question, especially this year. This is not going to be a, obviously a pandemic-focused talk. However, this year has shown that we've stepped a little bit backwards. Speaking very broadly, I'm not talking about every household, but we know from some of the data that we've been collecting that women are the ones who have taken on more of the responsibilities and the sort of brunt of managing this chaos at home with all of a sudden everyone at home. Part of it, I think, is natural. What I mean by that is we, as women, are naturally really good at multitasking. We can do many things. I, I don't necessarily think multitasking is a good thing. I just said that we're good at multitasking. It comes easy to us. It comes more naturally. There's a biological reason for that in, in how we used to live. I think it's sort of in our nature to get up and do all of those things. Now, consciously, whether that's a good idea or not is the more important question, because what that does, if we naturally fall into that pattern of being able to do a whole bunch of things efficiently, quickly, effectively. Again, it's not necessarily a conscious, hey, I think I'll just write off of her coattails. No, I, I don't think it's that way. I don't think that's what men are thinking. And again, we're speaking very broadly here, very generally. I, this by no means encompasses all men. But I think we inadvertently teach them and the people around us that we'll take care of it because we do. We just step in. We don't step back and let our partners take care of it. So that's the first thing. I've talked to people like that, or that was a, a major topic of conversation with women. And then you gotta step back. If you want him to do something, you gotta give him the opportunity to do it, number one. Now, if it's not happening, like you're stepping back and things aren't being taken care of, like you, you actually are opening on the window, don't wait. A lot of women wait and then they become resentful, as you say. Again, this is a little bit of conditioning now, maybe also nature, is that we are taught still, even now, to a degree, you're sort of responsible for the household. You're responsible for keeping things going. You're the glue. Don't say things like that because mom is not the glue. Parents and family is the glue. You're all the glue and parents are the leaders. So that language has made us feel like we're the central part of the family. And so we start to act that way in that role. And then because it's exhausting <laughs> to do that, that's when the resentment builds up. So my advice is don't wait. The moment you feel like there's not an equal share or balance and everyone's balance is going to look differently because it will depend on who works, who doesn't, who works this many hours, who works that. Like, there's not going to be a universal formula. It's going to be what works for your home. But however it is, it's got to be shared. We're in 2020, people. It must be shared. You can't do it all. Have that conversation with your partner. That resentment can and will build if you keep it to yourself. I went through this. I am... 
a wellness expert in <laughs> for the past decade. And I went through that this year with my husband because we have a difference in organization and how we actually keep the home. And I actually had to confront him and say, listen, we got to do better. And, and luckily he was receptive to that. But I know that I experienced a bit of resentment myself because I kept it to myself. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll just share my story too, because this happened about a month ago. Um, schools opened again. I actually work in our center on Fridays. I work from home. So my husband works from home now. It's great because he gets to sleep in an hour later than he used to. So I am up with the kids and getting ready. And then he's definitely up by the time to get them out the door and everything. So he typically helps with that. But like there was one morning where I think he just happened to sleep in a little bit later and kind of came down in his like calm self. And I was clearly really frantic. I looked at him and snarled a little bit. And then he was like, you know, if you want me to get up like 15 minutes earlier, whatever, just ask. And in my mind, I'm like, but you should know, you should know. So that's what I learned. Do not assume that they know you do have to lay it out for them. My husband was completely fine getting up earlier and, and helping, but I made the mistake of just assuming that he would no to do that to help me out that's such a good point and and it, i think it's it's very important also not to demonize them in our minds for that because it's just different we are different we're more same than we're different but we are built a little different and it's totally okay the vast majority of men that i've worked with are quite willing especially in this day and age like they get it and we also communicate differently men are verbal whereas women are visual so we assume that you ought to know because of body language, because of what you see, because of how a person's standing. Men are very verbal. They communicate just as well as we do. It's just different. No matter whether you're male or female, always ask for what you need. If it's a good, healthy relationship, they'll be willing to give it to you if it's a reasonable request. And don't wait to be angry. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So thank you so much. And now, you know, after having kids, things definitely drastically change and you're time that you kind of spend as a couple usually just naturally turns in into family time. So what do you suggest to help couples reconnect and just make sure that they do prioritize some time for themselves as couples? Part of this, I think, is our current lifestyle. I don't know that couples struggled as much with this. How do we find time for ourselves? in previous generations. Parenting was always busy. I've actually been able to ask (laughs) the oldest living people I know, like my grandparents, was parenting as busy as it is now. And they said it wasn't the same. And they also don't remember, they also have these major brain lapses on how parenting was, but but it was busy. It was a busy time, no question. But what was different was that the pace of their lives was a lot slower. And they've acknowledged that things were just slower, things were just calmer, and things now are so fast. They're not calm. So we have to create the calm ourselves. That's the number one thing I have for how to reconnect with not just yourself or your partner, but with yourself. We have to create a slower pace in the home. Because the outside world is kind of nuts in terms of the, the speed. But we can slow it down in the home by not overscheduling your family not having to rush off and run off to some place everywhere after school right away this weekend that weekend we do live in a time I think when we're so focused on optimizing every moment of our lives especially the young generations like millennials and young gen x and younger 
you don't have to optimize every experience. Lots of ordinary moments are in fact your best moments. That's the way to slow things down. The second thing is you must schedule time with your partner. Don't ask yourself, how can I prioritize time with my partner? It is a priority. It's as much a priority as taking care of your children, as making them food, as bathing them, as driving them to their soccer thing, which they love so much. You need to put it in your calendar. You need to set it aside because we'll set aside time for everything, right? We'll, we'll mark down our children's appointments, our own work appointments, our, uh, a dentist appointment, a hair appointment, a nail appointment, uh, uh, a yoga appointment, whatever. But we don't actually block off two things, time with our partners, time with ourselves. They're never on anyone's calendars for the most part, unless you heard this somewhere or figured it out. Put it in your agenda, your calendar, your phone, if you keep one, block it off on a piece of paper and hang it up on your fridge to say, this is the day of the week. And this is the time. And this is our time. And for couples, it ends up being short, late at night. However, now we have a little bit of a different situation. Maybe you can have some time during the day. I'm hearing some beautiful stories. I go for a walk with my husband. Almost every other day, we'll go for an hour walk. I hear it when I speak to people on the playground. We're opening up a new opportunity for us to reconnect with our partners during the day because we're at home. Take advantage of it. Schedule time out with your partner when your kids are at school and do so at night. Anything you can do, even just an hour, is more than nothing. Some is good, better than none. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's incredibly important. And I know, you know, a lot of people don't think about it, you know, actually putting it in their calendar, but it's true. If you do have it in your calendar, even on a post-it note, then chances are it will get done. So I think that's a great tip. It sends a message to yourself that that is important. And that's the key. Once you connect mentally to how important that is, the follow through is much easier. Now, can you explain codependency in a relationship and how it can affect um, the relationship after birth, after having children? Ooh, that's a, <laughs> a heavier question. So codependency is a dynamic between two people who are obviously in a relationship of some sorts. It could be romantic, could be even parent-child. It could be two friends. It doesn't have to be a romantic. Typically, one member has some kind of emotional weakness or um, affliction, could be a mental health issue, could be a personality issue or some kind of challenge or struggle, could be substance abuse or dependency. And so they manifest in that problem or that struggle. And then the other person often unconsciously or unintentionally enables the problematic behavior of their partner in a cyclical fashion in order to preserve the relationship. That's the definition of it. One person has an unhealthy issue, the other person is enabling that unhealthy issue for the sake of preservation and it the cycle continues on. So maybe that's how the relationship was when, when they first met, but then now throwing kids into the mix, right? So now kids obviously need different attention and more attention. How could that possibly affect the codependent relationship? This could do a few things, compromise the relationship because a codependent relationship is not a healthy relationship. That's obvious. If it wasn't obvious, it's not a healthy relationship. And what brought you to that is a combination, could be a combination of various different things, but typically is rooted in 
insecurity, lack of emotional strength, a sense of neediness, fear of independence, hence the term codependency. And what happens is, is that children observe. In a codependent relationship, they run the risk of feeling neglected because the code, a codependent relationship takes priority and the needs of those two people with their respective needs. One has the need to engage in the problematic behavior. The other one has the need to hold on to the problematic person. And children are on the outside of that. You've lost focus just by virtue of engaging in that. The second thing is, is that they see that. That becomes a template for the children, for a romantic relationship or the relationship between their parents. That's what they're going to think of as normal. Well, my dad always made excuses for my mother's drinking or the fact that she had a mental illness or a psychological problem that she never sought help for. And my father was always making excuses and enabling. And again, this isn't something that they would be able to put words to maybe until much later, but, or my father was addicted to alcohol and my mom never put her foot down. She never said anything, just always worked around it. And we never talked about it either. The danger there is they can of course pick up and repeat those habits. So it's very important if you think you're in a codependent relationship. It's never too late to change that dynamic ever. Just get help. Sometimes if you're the enabler, it's hard to get your partner to come, but do the best that you can. And if you can't get your partner to come with you to get help in counseling, go yourself so that you can build the strength and the independence that you need to make a good decision about whether you need can stay in that relationship or not. Before we open it up for questions, can you discuss some of the tools that people can access in order to get more resources on some of the topics that we talked today? Absolutely. There's two things that I have created in the past few years to help not just parents, but also any individual who would like tools that can help their wellness very tactically, strategically, and practically from home. Not everyone has the time or the resources or the energy to sit with someone one-on-one, it's a real pleasure to be able to do that. Even for clients who we see in my practice, it's important that they have things that they can do that are super quick and, and interesting to do, actually really effective based in sound clinical knowledge that will actually help them lift their mood, regulate their emotions, understand who they are and reflect. So the first thing is, it's called the Kindness Journal. It's a four-month journal based on the science of positive psychology and the science of happiness. It's a guided journal journal, which means that there are daily prompts that you fill in at the end of each day, which take just a few minutes to do. There's sort of an inspirational quote at the top, and then you can see that the first entry is, I am, and you put down three affirmations about yourself, but they're not the typical affirmation, they're affirmative actions, which is explained in the first section of the book. Looking back on the day, two things that were really nice, that you're really proud of, you write them down. Your favorite moment of the day, you write it down and then you actually close your eyes and mindfully relive the moment. Someone who showed me kindness today, you write that down there. And then the last one is how can I make tomorrow better? That should take about no more than six minutes, five minutes for the entries, one minute to do the mindful uh, savoring of that favorite experience. I also have created and just recently launched the Eight Hour Therapist. I'm really excited about this. We haven't really put it out into the world in a grand scale yet. That's what we're going to be doing in 2021. And the Eight Hour Therapist, it's eight courses that are approximately one hour each. And each course has a guided workbook that's about 15 pages or so each to correspond with each course. I co-created it with another psychologist and the idea was not everyone wants to or has the opportunity or money to see a therapist or a psychologist and everybody should have access to these tools. 
this should be like a human right, you know, just like if you break your arm or if you need healthcare, physical healthcare, everyone should have access to mental healthcare, but they don't. So we condensed all of our knowledge down into these eight courses. If we could condense all the psychological teachings, and there's a lot of good parenting things that we use, and there are a lot of good strategies for parents around how to maintain boundaries for yourself and with your children, how to make sure that you treat yourself with unconditional love and value yourself so that your children learn that you value yourself. They're not the entire center of your universe, so they learn to value themselves. And it also comes with one guided relaxation, which is a 45 minute audio where you just pop it on and it uses a combination of voice and hypnotherapy techniques to really relax, bring you into a deep state of relaxation and calm and then rewire your mindset at that level with positive suggestions, positive thinking, just making you believe that you're a strong, resilient person at that relaxed level so that when you're not doing it, you actually carry that forward. That's like, that sort of research has been clear for a long time. When we're deeply relaxed and uninhibited, also with, hence with this, when you do it at night, Things that we do in a deeply relaxed state or things that we receive in a deeply relaxed, uninhibited state, they stay with us longer. They imprint on the mind longer. Thank you so much, Dr. Sharma, for the information you provided us today. Make sure to check out inventivekids.com events for links to Dr. Sharma's resources and contact information, as well as for other parenting workshops, courses, and events. Thank you.